This is WGBB AM 1240 and W240 DF FM 95.9 Freeport, New York. The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. From the crossroads of Merrick Avenue and Sunrise Highway in beautiful Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York on 1240 WGBB. I'm your host, Mike Widone, along with Chris Caputo, the man we call Cap. We're going to give you an hour full of interviews, information, and everything New York sports and a little beyond tonight. Before we get started, though, I'd like to say hello to Cap. Chris Caputo, welcome back, buddy. How you doing, Mike? Good to be back in the studio with you. we got Brian Graves taking things for us on the other side of the glass. And uh, I'm excited. we got a full hour tonight, Mike, of uh, packed sports. Absolutely. We're going to have three guests on tonight, which we're very excited about. First one in just one moment is John Santamaria, our expert on the Islanders and the Jets. Then we're going to follow up with a new spot here that we haven't done in quite some time. We're going to talk a little college football with our expert, Connor Clark. And then we're going to finish it up tonight with a very special guest, head coach of Dartmouth women's basketball, Linda Simino. But before we get going, we'd like to welcome Johnny Santamaria, Johnny Sticks, Johnny Football, our Jets and Islanders guy. Welcome, John. Good to have you back on. Hey, what's going on? Hey, listen, you know, we got a little rainy Sunday night here. Not much. Well, we'll say that the uh, the NFL is still going, a little overtime with the uh, with the Bills and Philly down in Philadelphia. But we're excited to talk Jets and Islanders with you. Uh, leading off, let's talk a little bit of, about Jets, uh, where they're heading, a little coaching, security. What are your thoughts on that with Robert Sala and the, just where they're heading in general? Well, let, let's start with um, this is where you, you could say rock and a hard place. The easy scapegoat is obviously the coaching, but – this is one of the first times you're going to hear from me that this is a situation where I'm not going to fully blame Robert Sal 100%. The one thing where he's got to get better as a coach, they got to stop those personal foul penalties. That's pers- that's personalities. That's something he, I think he can, can he can control. Where he wasn't given a chance to succeed this year was because nobody planned for a what if, and it's not the first time we've seen this around the league either because. Remember when Peyton Manning got hurt in Indianapolis? I don't think they had a backup plan really either besides, all right, let's just go wing this. And that's how I think Joe Douglas went and approached the season. He put all his eggs in a couple of baskets, and look what happened. There's no depth on that offensive line. There was no depth in that quarterback room. There was no depth in a few other places. And the Jets, there's the better players on this team, the defense, some of the young stars, they paid the price for it. So, John, um, you know, I, I think the defense has kept the Jets in the season. You know, they've tried to win games. They had a couple of picks late in the first half to keep the Jets in their last game. But everything has been put on the offense's shoulder. And, you know, you make a move to boil, um, you know, the change in quarterback. Is anything really changing with the Jets now sitting at 4-7 and seven and still relying on on their defense to win games for them? I mean, maybe you'll win another game or two here, but I think we're looking at another five, six, seven win season 
pretty much where they were. They were seven and ten last season. Would not be surprised if they finished with that. Maybe six wins this year. But then again, they did not prepare if something was going to happen in key areas such as that offensive line. How did you think that was an okay thing to come into the season with? I guess they were just kind of, like you said, put their eggs in a lot of baskets and holding their breath, hoping that Aaron Rodgers could just, you know, take this offense where it needed to go and 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 see what happens. But you know, worst case scenario by far, they've been historically bad on offense. Um, it's kind of hard to think of them even putting up enough points to win any games in the future. But uh, I don't think that Robert Sala is is. You know, as you mentioned before, he, he's going to let them tank this, the rest of this. Uh, there is talk out there, John. You know, we hear about Aaron Rodgers that he's looking to get back to practice in two weeks. First of all, do you think that that's even possible? And second of all, why would you do that at this point? No, I wouldn't do that at all. At this point, just hit the season, get ready for next year. You want to be fully ready for a healthy 2024 with the guys. I wouldn't want to play in front of this offensive line. Whatever injury you're coming back from, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's whatever it might be. At that point in the season, no, it's not worth it. My other question is, I guess you know, with with Rogers again, I think, and I'm just speculating here, but I think it's a great idea for him, obviously to to try to push this rehab, you know, to talk about getting back on the field. But it's the one kind of feel good thing that I think at least the fans can kind of point to that. Hey, you know he's going to be back next year. He has every intention on on playing. Um, he he's a team guy. Uh, he wants to be on the field with his team, even though they're in they're struggling. So probably it's a little bit of a smokescreen that that he could possibly come back. But um, you know I, I give him a lot of credit at least for for being in in the public eye for for saying all the right things and 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 trying to you know get a little little buzz going with his team at, at this point. Um, you know, as, as you and I discussed briefly off the air, the New York football scene, whether you're talking Giants or Jets, even though the Giants won today in a, in a game that probably set football back about 20 years. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but Philadelphia just won a walk-off touchdown, Jalen Hurts. Thank you for the info. Hey, folks, we are up to the minute here on Sports Talk New York. Speaking of, of New York <laughs> New York sports, Buffalo almost, oh. uh, they're, they're pretty much buried at this point knowing uh, what they're, they're, they have the third hardest strength of schedule to finish the season out. And now at, at six and six, it's going to be really tough for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You thought the Jets tough was going to be finished. They're right there with you, too, in Buffalo. So, so John, as a football expert that we have on here each week, and, you know, you, you break down the Jets a lot, and, you know, obviously, you know, you're watching the Giants. Um, what do you think about the, the current regime's? In these two places, specifically the Jets, does a change need to be made either with general manager or coach or uh, stick with it? What you know? What are your thoughts going into this uh, this next week and and the, basically you know we're talking about the last third of the NFL season. All right, let's look at both teams. We'll start, we'll start, we'll start with the Jets. Um, this season's on Joe Douglas, and I think everybody knows that. Um, we haven't heard a whole lot from him since the start of the season. You wonder, though, and this has always been the tricky part with the Jets. What is going through Woody Johnson's mind? What is he going to do? My honest reaction right now, one, I don't think firing Robert Sala is the answer, but if he feels a change in the front office needs to be made, sure, why not? You could keep the coach. What you might want to do is pair him up with somebody who he could work with. 
Um, maybe go pull somebody out of San Francisco, in, uh, the front office that uh, John Lynch has over there. But other than that, unless you're telling me Jim Harbaugh's coming here, I don't think you do anything. You're not going to go get a coordinator, another what are one of these other coordinators going to do? You're just going to put a new offensive scheme in, then you're better off leaving everything the way you, you uh, built it. But if Woody Johnson wants to put blame on Joe Douglas and can him, that's fine. But I don't think Robert Sala, his defensive staff, nor the offensive coaches there should be penalized because this whole group in the front office did not prepare this coaching staff for all the what ifs. Yes, Nathaniel Hackett's had his up and down as a play caller, but you know what? That would piss Aaron Rodgers off next year if he's not here. John, I got one more about the Jets. Um, you know, as Jet fans were out there on uh, Black Friday, instead of uh, lining up to uh, pick up their packages from, from Target or Hit 5 Below or whatever it is, getting a, a, a distraught, a couple of days before there was a press conference, and one of the reporters says, Robert, what do you believe you guys could have done differently during the draft process while evaluating the quarterback position? His reply was, uh, actually, you know I've got my thoughts. I've shared them, uh, Joe, but I am not going to get it in, get into it here with you guys. Is that reading into it too much that maybe he has limited power or maybe there's a little bit of a rift between him and the general manager? Oh, I'm sure there are some disagreements. And you know what's going to happen? Joe, oh. Joe Douglas was here first. Robert Salas, he's going to say, oh, well, he's a defensive coach, this, this, and that. But what it turns out to anyway, what would you have picked that would have been better? The rest of that draft class is horrendous. The only other thing that you could have done, and I thought this was going to actually happen going back to uh, 21, was that I thought Sam Donald was going to stay and they were going to trade down from number two and load up on draft picks but and give him one more shot for for that before possibly picking a quarterback later. But they opted to clean house then. They wanted to get some value for Sam. It turned out it didn't work for him in Carolina, and it turned out it didn't work with Zach Wilson either. But you're in the spot now, and I think you're going to go back to the drawing board this offseason and potentially having to draft another quarterback. You're going to have to. I mean, that's, I, why I said before, that's why I said before. Woody Johnson's got the tough call now. Now that he's back, he wasn't around when Joe Douglas was hired. Remember, I, he was still uh, serving the country. Yeah, I just don't understand how Wilson is still on the sidelines. They should have just let him go. Just cut the guy and say, hey, listen, we don't want to embarrass the guy and make him stand on the sideline. They should have just let well, him go. To be fair, that's probably a, uh, a whole salary tap. Uh, tap yeah, I know, but, but, but he's not going in a game if Boyle screws up. I mean, this is next year, this is Aaron Rodgers' team, and they need to build something around him and just hope for one more year. But you got to bring in a guy that's going to possibly learn under Aaron Rodgers, and it's not going to be Wilson. But A hundred percent, and that's why I keep saying, too, I don't know if Woody Johnson feels the change needs to be made in the front office, but he should really be thinking about, is Joe Douglas going to be the guy to pick that quarterback, especially well, if you're in position to you pick. Tommy DeVito's two and one as a starter. So Tommy DeVito two and one as a starter. You're not doing too well as the Jets. But we're going to transition into the Islanders, and I'm going to let Mike take over. Well, yeah. Well, one, one quick thought on the Giants with, with sure. your regime too to finish that up. Um, Go right ahead. I think Joe Shane is doing a, a fairly nice job. They're still cleaning up a little bit of the mess there, but and I think he'll have his chance to pick a quarterback as well too. So let's give him a full. Let's give him another year before we really evaluate him because I think everything's fine with him. It's just we know now that Daniel Jones probably isn't long-term there. 
Yeah, John, I think you're spot on with both of those evaluations of those teams. As Cap said, we're gonna we're gonna transition here just to the Islanders, a team that was in a little bit of a a state of chaos, uh, you know, less than a week ago, but a couple of wins, close loss last night in a shootout against the Flyers. That kind of turns things around. Uh, I guess where we go with the Islanders right here, John, is, you know, I, I always hate to keep going back. We're going to do the same thing about coaching. But um, if the Islanders come back from that West Coast trip without a win, is Lane Lambert still the coach? I had a feeling he was going to go if that was going to be the case. Mm. And I and Cap and I had mentioned it before, too. I had said, yeah. hey, Gerard Gallant, the ex-head coach of the Rangers, is sitting out there. Maybe his personality is what was what the Islanders needed and what didn't work at Madison Square Garden. But Lane Lambert was able to pull a win out of out in Calgary. They had a couple of good days off, good practice, a very good, very, very good week. I was at the game last night. That ice was horrendous. Really? On top of the fact that they looked better. The ice did not look good. It looked like a slip and slide. There was some comedy show in there on Friday night, but you can't tell me that's going. Yeah. That that's an issue with the ice. But it does it, that part does worry me though because, as you guys know, following college basketball, there's a lot more uh, college hoops on the schedule at UBS Arena this year. So when the Islanders come back following those games, I just hope that's not going to be an existing problem through the winter time. Now, that's a really good point because with a lot of new arenas, you know, that as long as they are just kind of focusing on one tenant like they have been for the Islanders. And now, you know, the place is, is literally blowing up with, with all sorts of stuff in college basketball. It's it's taken over a lot of events from Barclays. So getting that ice in good condition is going to be tough. You know, John, my question to you was, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, how does the NHL schedule the Islanders at home against the Flyers on Wednesday? Then, obviously, Thanksgiving, they're off. Then they got to go to Ottawa on Friday night, and then they come back and play the Flyers again on Saturday. Who is scheduled? How did, does that make and sense in any way? The arena, I wonder if that's the arena availability and Oof. with that comedy show that the that I hope they it was funny on Friday. <laughs> I mean, I hope I hope they packed the place. But I mean, what what's the I mean, what is the thought process? I I, I know you don't work for the NHL, but I mean, having having the same opponent twice in three days and then sending you up to Ottawa. I mean. Are we are we trying to, to mess with the Islanders here a little bit, or we always seem to get a weird no, schedule? No, because even Philadelphia too, they went home and came back. They had a home game and then had a oh, they did? okay, yeah, all right. A bus trip to Philadelphia is different, but you know what? It's the same like we were just saying too. All these buildings have a ton of tenants. Look at Wells Fargo Center, um, the Garden, just to name a few. There's a, there's so much going on right now, and it's just hard to. It's just probably hard from a scheduling standpoint, and then. Probably up in Ottawa, not many teams use their buildings. So those teams in Canada, for the most part, other than concerts, have a little bit more flexibility in the schedule. So that's what I think ultimately happened. But, yes, it was bizarre, and especially when you have to go through customs. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, it takes that's a long night. It takes a lot. So just as, as we, we kind of round out here, John, so you said, you know, obviously the Islanders with the wins are looking better. What have you seen these last couple of games that uh, – that has kind of turned the tide for them and what they need to be doing going forward. A little bit more better, a little bit uh, tighter on defense. A couple of guys went down in Ottawa. Pellick is going to be on a long-term IR, so they were able to get Mike Riley in from Boston. So now a little bit more defensive depth. Get a good look now with Old Duke. Uh, Hutton's up. So maybe just a little bit of the uh, change of personnel. And then, again, going back to that road trip, 
that's a tough trip always to go to Western Canada and Seattle. Um, but the defense looks like they were la- they were uh, struggling a little bit, and then I feel like this happened last year too that they were trying to focus on some other things and they forgot about all the good defense that they played, and that Lane Lambert uh, sold, had with uh, Barry Trotz. So maybe they just went back to some of the basics. And the other thing too is they they're not real. They didn't really turn the puck over too much this week. So those are some little things. Just got to clean up. Yeah, and, and the Rangers are, are kind of running away with everything. And then after that, you know, the Islanders can get themselves back in it. You saw right now with the Islanders trying to replace some injured players. Um, when is it crunch time for Lou Lamoureux? He's already made a couple of moves, as you said, Riley, and then they traded um, uh, Tice Thompson for Arnold Durandu. And I think, strangely enough, Thompson's father was the coach of the Islanders AHL club until this yeah, season. Yeah, Brent Thompson. And Brent then Thompson. Brent Thompson, right? is on the And his brother Tage is on the uh, Sabres. So, and his brother's on the Sabres. So the father leaves, we get rid of the son. But when, when is, uh, do you think Lou will make a major move um, because the team is now maybe injured and looking to make a push? Well, they did acquire, to just rephrase, they did acquire Thompson from the devil. So got you. They got Thompson back. Got you. Um, I still think it's a little early for that. Okay. I think you have to see if Pellick is true to his word and they're saying that he could possibly be back by right around Christmas. And then you have a little bit of time off. The NHL builds that to the schedule. There are no games around the holidays. So he'll have a little bit of time to really recover. Um. As far as far as depth, I think you want to see, and now with Matt Barton out too for a few more games. Yeah, well, he's, he's going to be out Julian for a while. Coffee, yeah. You could also determine too. You're not going to probably trade your first round pick this year. I, I yeah. would be very very surprised and, if they do that again. And, and listen, you, you you mentioned the defense, but at this point, there's one guy with ten goals, and that's Brock Nelson. Nobody else has more than five goals on this team. So you wonder if maybe they'll go spend a third or a fourth round pick and they'll get one of those rentals to just boost up a little bit of depth on the on the bottom line. Just another another winger. Maybe another the the problem's going to be is they don't have a lot of cap rooms to play with. Gotcha. All right, Johnny, we appreciate you coming on. Great stuff as always, my friend. And listen, you know, when we're on in, in another week or two, hopefully the Islanders continue their winning ways and we get a little bit a little clearer picture of the Jets, but uh, great inside information as always. Uh, we'll be looking for you at UBS, and and thanks again for joining us, John. Always bringing the the Islanders and, and Jets expertise. Yeah, I'll be at MetLife in two weeks for uh, Jets Texans, so that that should be very interesting. And you know what? Honestly, I would not be. I mean, the likely scenarios come. Who knows? You could possibly split these next two Jet homies because they. I think they have a shot against the Falcons if they don't make mental mistakes. Well, let's see if they make it interesting, and we'll definitely talk after that game and, and enjoy that experience out at MetLife. Once again, John Santa Maria, ladies and gentlemen, have a good evening, Johnny. You as well. All right. So some interesting insights there, Chris. You know, it, very difficult, I think, to make anything uh, exciting about the Jets right now because it just is what it is. And even the Giants winning a game, like, come on, you just beat the New England Patriots who couldn't get out of their own way, and – Neither team, I think, is 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 heading for anywhere, you know, positive this year. They're just trying to to play out the string, give some guys some time, see what's out there. It's really tough on the New York spot. 
to think about football in a positive way right now. But people are still going to the games, having a good time, and again, you just want to evaluate some players. Well, yeah, even as a as a Giant fan, it was kind of you know, obviously we'd like to see them win, but uh, it it's really would be in their best interest right now to not win because it's going to give them a little bit better. You know, draft choice. I mean, nobody's going to be as bad as the Carolina Panthers are right no. now. But you could put yourself, I mean, that game today versus the Patriots was, hey, whoever's going to lose is going to have a better spot as far as getting a draft pick. But, uh, you know, again, some bright spots. And I think for both teams, they're just looking to fill some gaps. Well, uh, do you, you know what? We were talking about this the other night with a, a couple of friends of mine about going to see a, a Giant or a Jet game, you know, at this point. Because put me in a suite. I'm not sitting out in the cold or the rain. Uh, you know, give me something positive to, uh, yeah, absolutely. to talk yeah, about. Because that, that's, I think that's the only way you could ever, you could ever watch a game here in this, uh, and almost have to pay me to go, go see these games at this point. Yeah. Uh, I think, and Mike, you know, like you look at the, these teams out there at four and seven, you got to remember it's also a 17 game schedule. You're going to be heading into, uh, January and still having to play games. And I think certain people have tickets to the Jets and they're hoping that Aaron Rodgers comes back so they could just see him in like, you know, the final game, right. even though they're, you know, six and ten going into the last game. So, or, or uh, at the very least sell their seats for something and, and exactly. Maybe I'll make some, some money, money yeah, back. Definitely. Well, we're going to talk a little football now, but of the college variety. And we're going to welcome in a new expert with us tonight. And this is Connor Clark. Connor, good friend of mine and, and a big-time college football analyst. Connor, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. How are you? Doing great, my friend. And, and one thing we want to introduce right off the bat is when we're talking college football, nothing bigger than Ohio State, which I know you're a huge fan of, and Michigan. So uh, we're going to start right off with that. Give us a quick little breakdown of that game. I know it was not the result you were looking for, uh, but how would you feel about that? Did that game live up to the hype? And then we're going to talk a little bit, you know, just about uh, about the national scene. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, not the uh, not the result, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> us fans were looking for. But from uh, the perspective of the game living up to the hype, I mean, absolutely. I think you had everything in that game. You had two really good defenses that were just going at it and shutting down both offenses, which, you know, for both teams outside of Penn State, um, both teams were pretty good offensively throughout the year. So it was interesting to see. You're just watching a lot of pros on the field. And, um, you know, I think it was a good classic um, Ohio State-Michigan battle, whereas, um, you know, the past couple of years it seems like whoever scores in the 40s wins. This time it seemed like, uh, you know, if you could score 28, you might win. So um, I thought overall, you know, for Michigan – it really showed, um, you know, just how dominant they still are uh, in the trenches. I thought their line play was outstanding. I thought J.J. McCarthy used his legs enough. And, um, you know, I, I think this puts Michigan in prime position for that number two slot in the uh, in the college football playoff, whereas, uh, you know, for Ohio State, it's kind of, you kind of have to go back to the drawing board. It seems like they find a, find a way to lose every year that's, uh, you know, wasn't sort of uh, on the bingo card. Um, so, you know, um, for Ryan Day, it's just, uh, it's just interesting. Mike, I know you're a coach. I mean, it, you can imagine being 56 and 7, um, and still having fans kind of, uh, Calling you know, head, questioning yeah. whether or not you're the right guy. 
um, you know, he's he's one in three against Michigan, and he's um, he's uh, also one in three in the college football playoff. And so you take a you take a step back, and you realize that six of his seven losses are uh, are the top five teams, <laughs> and you kind of take a deep breath. But yeah, so we'll see we'll see where they go from there. Yeah, that's an amazing point because you you're talking about one of the one of the great coaches in in all of college football, and if he's not beating Michigan, that is, that is considered just you know the, the death march for for his job. But hopefully, um, you know that one loss is not going to deter them. Just a quick question, and then and then Cap's going to ask you a little bit about the national scene. Did you did you sense that the suspension of Jim Harbaugh from Michigan took away or added anything to that game, or was it just kind of you know, hey, listen. At this point, it's two you know powerhouses going at each other. Yeah, I th- no, I think it definitely added something, but I think um, it, it might have been almost a, a positive and a negative. I think over the past two games, because he's been suspended um, for the Penn State game and the Maryland game as well, I think you could really sense that the team rallied behind Sharon Moore, and he was sort of the emotional leader. And, and that guy is—he's going to be a head coach sooner rather than later. That's and um, you know, I, I think that uh, he did a really good job at being able to uh, weaponize the emotion of Michigan at home, getting behind the fans and, and everything like that. And I thought he um, he brought a really great X factor to that team. Um, in terms of adjustments and things like that, I think, you know, I, I, Harbaugh was with the team during the week, and I, I think that they got enough of the game plan then. Um, I I'm pretty sure he's not the play caller um, during the games. I think right. that's, that's Sharon Moore. Yep. So I, I think that it was pretty much um, status quo from that standpoint. It was just a matter of can Sharon Moore step up in that leadership role. And I think he, you know, passed every single test with flying colors. Yeah, Connor, this is uh, Chris Caputo here, Cap. Um, and also, Michigan had a self-imposed ban on Harbor earlier in the season, so he actually hasn't coached six games already this year. So he's only actually only coached half of their games. What I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, I watched Alabama pull off uh, a crazy game last night, and, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's never been a two-team, a two-loss team make the playoffs. Um there are some teams that got that have gotten tested, but there still are five undefeated teams. With the uh, championships coming up for the conference, is there any chance that any of those one-loss teams, Ohio State, Texas, Alabama, sneaks their way in if one of those other teams, Washington was tested, Florida State was tested, uh, if even Georgia was tested, if one of those teams slips up, do you think that uh, either Ohio State or Alabama or Texas could sneak in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's a very interesting situation because you have this Alabama team, which, um, you know, it, it seems to be going not necessarily at full Nick Saban um, speed, but, you know, it's still a very imposing force that you have that Texas loss sort of looming over, and you can't necessarily put Alabama above Texas. And so I think for the committee, I think they might, you know, they would never say this, but I think they're hoping Georgia just sort of cancels Alabama out because if Alabama wins and Texas wins, you kind of are in a tricky situation. But I think the main one to look at is um, Oregon. I think um, Oregon has the best shot at beating um, one of the undefeated and sort of taking their spot and avenging their only loss of the season, uh, much like Georgia did in 2017 to get into the uh, playoffs. So, uh, Washington hasn't looked quite right um, uh, for the past couple of weeks, especially defensively. And 
Um, I think that Oregon uh, is sort of primed and ready to go, obviously winning 31-7 to against the rival Oregon State on Friday night. So I think that's the one to look out for um, out of all those uh, one-loss teams. Great stuff, Connor. So normally we don't dive in too much into college football here only because New York is such a you know professional sports town. As we kind of wrap up here tonight, how do you feel Rutgers – fits in in the New York landscape, and, and is that a program that, that can kind of make a little bit of noise here again with Greg Ciano? Yeah, so I absolutely think so, and I think they took a great step this year. You know, they're bowl eligible for the first time, and I believe it was 2014 was yeah. the last time they were bowl eligible, so it's been a while, and, you know, I think a very important factor when you're talking about Rutgers, especially, is the new look Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, there's four teams that benefit more so than any other uh, teams in the new look Big Ten. That's Rutgers, um, Indiana, Maryland, and Michigan mm-hmm. State. And the reason why is because now they don't have to play Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State every year. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, because of that, I, you know, I think Rutgers can absolutely make some noise. You know, Greg Schiano is an excellent recruiter and he's starting to recruit, uh, New Jersey, New York very well. He's getting the type of athletes needed to fit his defensive scheme. And on the offensive side, I think Gavin Winsat has shown a lot of growth throughout the year. I think people forget he reclassified. So he's a redshirt sophomore, but in reality, he's a year young for being a redshirt sophomore. So, you know, I think that can only help, and I think that increases the likelihood he stays. But, you know, again, if you're looking at the schedule and you're switching out Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan for what looks like USC, Washington, and maybe Wisconsin, all of which are going to go through drastic changes and are kind of up in the air in terms of their future, I really like Rutgers' chances to make a lot of noise uh, next year, especially. Yeah, they just got to win some uh, road games. They're one and four this year, and if they're gonna have to travel to California, it's gonna be a little tough. Yes, that could definitely be tough. Um, but you know, you look at some of the other games that they have on the road. They have at Virginia Tech, who has not been looking great in the past couple of years. You have at Nebraska um, as well. These are winnable games on the road for them, um, and. You know, I, I think that their home slate also, too, is really benefiting them as well. So I, I like their chances a lot to, um, you know, improve upon the 6-6 six and six record that they closed out with this season. Connor, absolutely great stuff. It was a real pleasure having you on. We'd love to have you back on in the next couple of weeks to talk about how the national scene is breaking down. Uh, you gave us a lot of great insights, specifics. Um, a pleasure to have you on, and um, look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, Mike. All right. All the best, and uh, we're going to take a quick break here on WGBB Sports Talk New York. And after the break, we're going to talk to Coach Linda Simino from Dartmouth College. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBB Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. 
You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to WGBB Sports Talk New York. I'm your host, Mike Widone, along with my co-host, the cap, Chris Caputo, taking you right up till 9 o'clock tonight. And now we're going to hit something that both Chris and I are very, very excited about. College basketball, specifically women's college basketball, and we are honored to welcome in the new head coach of Dartmouth College, Coach Linda Simino. Coach, how's everything going tonight? Hey guys, how are you? Long time no see, but happy to be here. And I got to listen to the beginning part of your show, so um, I'm excited and honored to be here as well. Well, thanks so much. We're not going to ask any Jets or Islanders questions, but we are going to. <laughs> we are going to say congratulations tonight. Uh, we know you just got off the bus. Great win up in New Hampshire. Thank you. Yes, it was uh, it was a barn burner, you know, high high octane offense, forty to forty three. <laughs> hey, listen, doesn't doesn't have to be pretty, as we know. You just have to get one more point on the other side of the scoreboard. And coach, you had a you had a coach in the last minute, probably. I didn't watch the whole thing, but you know, you hit some free throws. You got to call timeout, advance the ball to midcourt. All that stuff is important, right? It sure is, and um, we we practiced situations yesterday in practice, and one of the exact situations that we were in, we actually practiced. Um, so it was uh, it was a good refresher, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, APOs are my thing. Um, I love them, and uh, I'm just happy we executed and made the layup. Awesome. Um, I think for you, you know, it, it's not Louisville, Kentucky, but to beat somebody in state and. You know, I don't mean to put it this way, but getting your first, you know, win against the D1 team at Dartmouth must have been pretty satisfying for you today. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the first win, it's the first Division One win at in Dartmouth since uh, December 10th, 2022. That's uh, amazing! Wow. Yeah, if you, when you put it that way, one of my friends texted me and she and she said that, and I I didn't even look at it that way, but you know, they're coming off two wins last year and three wins the year before, so. My seniors have only won five games in their college career, and so uh, trying to trying to shift the mindset and uh, and change the culture, and got to learn how to win. And I'm glad we were able to do it today in a, in a game. So it's it's great for us. Well, just to give people a background, uh, you were well. We'll start even further back. You were a coach at Calhoun for three seasons, which is your Long Island uh, times. Uh, talk for a few seconds about that time. My first win at Calhoun was against Locust Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I was not on the sidelines at that time. Uh, although, although you, you took care, uh, you took care of business against me all the time, so it's all good. But we're, um, listen, the, the, that that's all good. I, between Calhoun and the Delphi, I, I, you know, I'm sure you have a, a thousand Long Island stories. Oh man, I had such a good uh, time when I was coaching at Calhoun and um, my experience at Delphi, and. Um, made some lifelong connections and friendships like with you two. I mean, it's, it's great. It's, um, it's all about the relationships, isn't it? Pat Summit's famous quote, you know, um, it's you win in life with people and, and, um, you know, I, I'm just happy to know you guys. I think I remember coaching with you, Mike, some type of all-star game or something. We were pra- had practice at Malloy College. Yes. I mean, we go, we go way back. Way back. We? Yep. We, t- we both paid our dues, haven't we? <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'll tell you when, when I was at, uh, in, in my last season at New York Tech, NYIT, and we, I, I remember this as plain as day, our first scrimmage 
of the season was against you when you were at Caldwell, and you did such a good job there, obviously, which led you on to your Division One. Um, but it was obvious to anybody who was watching then that, that you were going to be, you know, a, a superstar in in this profession, and that you were on the fast track. Um, I know Cap asked you about about Calhoun, but can you talk a little bit about you know your your rise from going to Caldwell Division Two and then up to Binghamton Division One, taking that leap? And then, you know, as you moved on to St. Francis, uh, you, you just seemed to, to instill that, that winning attitude and, and that, that kind of, uh, you know, new feeling as you go along. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear from you how that Division two to, to Division one jump was and, and were you prepared for it or was there some things when you got to Binghamton that you just thought to yourself, wow, what have I gotten myself into? Well, you know, I've coached at every level except Division Three. So um started at eighth, in eighth grade coaching at um, Valley Street Memorial, um, going go. way back to my, when I was a senior in, in college. Yep. And then, you know, Queensboro Community College, so the JUCO level, and then, you know, um, and Calhoun High School. I was only an assistant in my, in my entire career. I was only an assistant one season back at Adelphi. And, and then moved on to Caldwell. And what a lot of people don't know is um, I was a teacher at Calhoun High School and uh, taught in the Belmore Merritt District for five years. And, and the scariest part of my career and probably, you know, the, the, the career path change that I made when I left teaching to go to Caldwell full-time as a, an associate athletic director and head basketball coach at, at the D2 level. And, you know, I took a... Forty-seven thousand dollar pay cut yeah, when I abso- did that. Absolutely. And, yeah, and it was like you know, okay, so I'm still young enough where I can follow my dreams and passion, and you know, I want to do this full time. And I just finished my second master's in administration, and I was like, all right, let me get my feet into administration. So when I was an administrator at Caldwell, I did everything. Well, I'm, I'm talking everything. I'm talking like I would coach a game and then wash the uniforms. Like I would wash <laughs> the men's uniforms, the soccer yep. uniforms, line line the softball field, put up the fences for the softball games, you know, um, you know, staff work study. So I did everything in terms of that, like facilities management and all that. So I think that really humbled me and, and made me understand the big picture. And then um, we had a couple of really good um, seasons at Caldwell and um, – and when I got that call to the chairman, at first I, I told him I wasn't interested. I didn't want to move. I, you know, I like to try to here. I like the city. And, um, and then when I really started to look at it and they said, you know, they needed somebody that could rebuild. And I never really even looked at Caldwell as a rebuild, even though it was, right? Like they, did, they hadn't won for four or five years leading up to me getting there. Mm-hmm. And so going to Binghamton, I did feel prepared, um, I felt like, wow, I, I have so much time on my hands just to focus on basketball. I didn't know what to do with myself because at Binghamton, they had eight full-time people that did the job responsibilities that I did at Caldwell. Yeah. You know, that eight, eight people. So <laughs> I was like, wow, I have all this I have all this time to watch film and do workouts. And so from that perspective, I definitely felt prepared. Um, but I, And I was just doing an interview the other day with the Ivy League and Somebody asked, you know, about me taking over, and, and I said, you know, my career, if you look at my career record, it stinks, and my career record will never be good because I've, I only take over programs that have, haven't won and haven't struggled and coaches that either have left or not, you know, have been non-renewed. And so um, the first couple of years is always that rebuilding process, and so, um, you know, you, you try to change the culture from the foundation up. And so, 
Yeah, Binghamton was a great experience for me. Um, you know, the American East was a, a tremendous conference to play in, and it's, it's changed a lot. The makeup of it now is different. But, um, yeah, it's exciting to just to coach full-time, right? It can seem, I mean, you know, you're always recruiting. You're always watching film. You're always on the phone. Uh, and so it, it consumes, you know, 24-7. But yeah. at the same time, it's like I don't work for a living, right? Like, it's my passion. <laughs> We're talking with uh, head coach Linda Simino from Dartmouth College. I'm not going to give the full name. You have like a really long name. That uh, get... yes, Gail Coziara Bujo, 82, and family. Um, uh, she's she's a tremendous supporter. She's one of the best players ever to play in Ivy League, uh, three-time Ivy League Player of the Year, and she endowed uh, my uh, position. And so she's a she's a big-time friend of our program and. Happy to carry her name with my title. Great. So um, at at Caldwell, you took over a team that was pretty much averaging ten wins, and then over your final uh, five years, I think you averaged eighteen wins. You go to Binghamton, where they went from four wins, and then you were a twenty-win team, and you actually even won uh, a postseason game. You go to St. Francis, and for five years, you had four winning conference records. What do you put into? How you turn around? Like what? What is it that takes a team? And, and I don't want to use the word rebuild, but how do you instill a culture of winning into these females? So instead of rebuild, I use I use the word a lot reshape because you don't want to insult sometimes. So you reshape programs. And gosh, I feel like I'm in an interview. That's like an interview question right there. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the job, Sam. Don't worry, it's okay. taking notes here so just so you know <laughs> you have to build um the right staff you have to find the people who have the same vision as you who um have the same passion and um basically understand that you know we can't talk about what they can't do we've got to talk about what they can do and then we have to develop it even further and so um i think that's that's probably the hardest part. The hardest part, in my opinion, of coaching is um, is staff, is managing slash influencing the staff. Um, and so that's step number one. Step number two is, you know, you have who you have, right? Like I, I couldn't bring anybody in with me this year. And, um, you know, it's so at Binghamton I was lucky enough to bring in a player right with me. And I actually brought, I brought in two players with me, um, and they were program-changing players. So, um Finding out what they can do well, and then this is the hard part, and this is what I'm finding out right now again, is I literally have to coach every single possession. And so instead mm-hmm. of playing like an open offense or motion or anything, like we, we want a lot of quick hitters so mm-hmm. that we're manufacturing shots for the right people in the right space at the right time. Instead of letting them play free, um, you know, it's really like structured offense, in, except in transition. And, you know, that's what you have to do early on when – you're changing your program, and you're going to have some low-scoring games, but at the same time, like, you're able to execute when you need to execute. You know, that it's really a great point, Coach, because um, we're in two different worlds with, with you being a Division One coach and me in the high school, but um, – my last couple teams have been very successful. This year I have a whole different makeup. And I was, I was thinking about what you were saying about having to run, you know, quick hitters to manufacture offense because that's, that's the exact boat I'm in this year. Everything kind of, you know, comes full circle and you start over and it's about your personnel. Um, so, you know, you obviously have 
your finger on the pulse of what needs to be done with a group that you inherited, number one, and you're just trying to do the best you can with it. Um, we brought up, you know, St. Francis. And for, for those of the listeners out there that aren't familiar, um, you know, Coach Simino was there, St. Francis doing a great job, and then they announced all of a sudden that they are discontinuing athletics. And that must have obviously came as a huge surprise to you. Um, how do you how do you handle that when the dust settles about a your career and also you know about your players who I'm sure you're, you're ultra close with in their careers? Well, yeah, it was a shocker, and you know I love St. Francis, love my director of athletics, our staff. We had the best team coming back in the conference. All of our players were coming back. Um, none of them were going to transfer. Like we literally were going to have a. a, a a championship team and so it was heartbreaking um for me and uh for everybody and you know for for two days you know my phone blew up and and half of it were people like checking in on me and the other half were people that were just trying to cash in opportunistic you know <laughs> uh opportunity like hey yeah. can i get your player can i get your player i mean i had five kids that were highly recruited to you know had 20 30 offers and so we've got players that are playing in the a10 the big east the Sun Belt, um, you know, all over. And so um, the, my first priority was, you know, finding my players a home and, and fielding phone calls. And but, but at the same time, I was cautious about who, you know, where they were going to go and who they were going to play for because we had different type of kids. Like our, our kids were like family kids, winners. Like it, it wasn't about um, just using them for their skill. Like we loved each other. We cared about each other off the court. And so for me – I wanted to make sure that they really had a good home. And at the same time, I was interviewing for a couple of jobs. And had I got, you know, one or two jobs, depending on what they were, I had, you know, a couple of them that were going to come with me so that they could stay together and play together. And so the crazy thing is I got the Dartmouth job, like, three days too late to take one of the kids with me. Oh, boy. She waited as long as she could. And then I hand-delivered her to one of my good friends at Stetson. Um, and so um, – I'm really proud of them. You know, the NCAA is, is – their rules are crazy. And can you believe that I'm not allowed to talk, text, or keep in touch with any of my players? So I found them all homes, worked as their agent. He literally got them scholarships to go to different schools. And now because they still have remaining eligibility, the NCAA will not allow me to communicate with them. Absolutely so, ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous. And, you know, I went through a whole, like – thing at Binghamton with uh, NCAA violations. I was on probation and those all because, you know, because the, the coach couldn't handle the fact that I was, you know, talking to players. And, um, yeah, what you, know, you, so, what, so what you want to do is you're cultivating relationships. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, you don't want to just, like, leave them hanging, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, there was no tampering. It wasn't about getting them to transfer or anything. It was just, you know, like, sorry that your grandfather died. Like, how are you doing? Happy yeah. birthday. Like, and I can't even do that. And so that's the hardest part. Like, I can go through the coach and check in and see how kids are doing. And, and fortunate enough, I'm, I'm friendly with a lot of the coaches where they're dealt, where, where the players are at. So I can check in, um, so that they know they don't feel abandoned by me. But yeah, it was heartbreaking. And then, you know, it was, it was almost like a reevaluation for me. I had an opportunity and time to travel. I took my mom away. You know, I went to Spain, and and we recruited at a tournament, even though I didn't have a job. Like, I was like, all right, well, you know what? No one else can recruit right now. It's not an eval, you know, period. I'm going to go out on my own dime, and I'm going to watch a lot of games and get a jump start on some of these kids that no one, you know, can 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 go out because I didn't have a job. And 
interestingly enough, I got a phone call from the AD at Dartmouth while I was in Spain. Wow. Um, you know, and so it was a good time for me to, like, reevaluate. Do I want to coach pro? I got offered a pro job in Spain. Did I want to go? I, you know, I had an opportunity to go to a D2 school down in Florida. Like, what did I want to do? Did I want to get out of coaching, go into admin, and then – you know, a door was open for me and Ivy League, you know, and Ivy League by the seventh best conference in the country and it was just such an unbelievable opportunity and they said they wanted somebody that could come in and, and you know, build and flip the program and Courtney Banghart down at UNC is a Dartmouth alum, mm-hmm. former Princeton head coach and she basically told the the, the ABS Dartmouth like, you know, this is the person you need to hire. Um, she can do it, you know, so uh, I feel a lot of pressure, <laughs> but also, um, but I like that, right? Like I, I wanna, I wanna make her proud and her her former teammates proud. Well, you have to be a person of great faith to be able to handle the adversity that you were just talking about, and obviously, um, you know, if if you go along those lines, good things happen to good people, and when and you're not in the, in the right place at the right time, there's something there's something else going along with that. I know you're a person of great faith. Um, you, you've been working on a book. I don't know where that stands right now, but could you just talk briefly about, you know, how your faith plays into your professional, your personal life and, and just how it's brought you to this point? Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, it keeps you grounded and, uh, you know, when all else fails and, and you, there's chaos and moments of weakness, you have to look at the bigger picture and then you have to ask yourself why. And still on your worst day, it's still somebody else's best day. And so, um, for me, it's, it's important to stay grounded and to stay faithful and to understand that, you know, there's a lesson through everything, you know, and it's what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but we talk about what doesn't kill you makes you fruitful, right? There's, there's, there's an opportunity to learn and, and a learning experience. And, you know, I'm actually still lecturing, uh, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Yeah, I was wondering now. about that. You've been able yeah. to do that? <laughs> On my off days, I, I go back. I kept my apartment in New York City, and on my oh, good for you. I, I head down to the city, and I and I still do the five thirty vigil mass on Saturdays, and Amazing. I still read, you know, Tuesday and Thursdays every now and then. I read on Thanksgiving. I, I landed. I was um, recruiting in in Europe um, last week, and I actually flew back on Thanksgiving and then did the five thirty mass. So oh, wow. I think it's important. I, I have a couple of kids on my team that are that are religious and faith-based, and even though this is not a, a faith-based school like St. Francis and Caldwell, or, um, you know, it's still an opportunity to, that we talk about it, you know, and, um, you know, the, there's a couple of players in my church, uh, my team that attend church at, you know, the Aquinas out on campus, and so I think for them it makes them feel more comfortable knowing that they have a coach that they can, you know, talk to about uh, sure. faith or, um, you know, sit in church next to <laughs> Again, we're talking with uh, head coach Linda Seminole of Dartmouth College. And, uh, you know, Mike and I uh, have, have had plenty of interactions coaching against you, laughing, all that stuff. And, um, number one, you've, we know that you've done a great job in, in at every place you've been. And we talked about, you know, you had some tough times between March and, and you know, May, June when you, when you got this job. And I knew something was going to pop up for you, and it just had to be. I know you were just waiting for that for that right spot. Um when you kind of look at how women's basketball has changed in the past, I don't know, let's say 20 years or so since we've been going at this, um, what's the biggest thing, probably more especially in the last few years for you? 
Well, in terms of coaching, the the transfer portal is out of control. Um, you know, uh, the good thing about working at Dartmouth and the Ivy League is the kids are not really transferring out. You know, you, you get them and because they want it, they want to stay at a at a high academic and an Ivy League school. Um, but you know, you always wondered, right? Like I was at St. Francis and we had like such good players and you always have like a rookie of the year all rookie kid and you're like almost didn't want them to be rookie of the year or <laughs> to be player of the year because you didn't want them to get poached by a higher level and that's what's happening it's like we became like the northeast conference and america east became almost like the juco for the power five at least on the men's side and so you started to see it on the women's side and it's like um that was the that was the unbelievable part about our program last year was all of our kids were going to come back you know and and some of them got poached mid-game, right? Like before the game, right? after the game, the hands decline. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, so it, it speaks to people's character and integrity a little bit. And so the players that we had, like, they were like, that's crazy. Like, why would they ask me about going there? Like, like the type of kids that we had, they, they didn't, they, like, they were turned off by that. But right now with the transfer portal and I, you know, how much money, you know, show me the money with the NIL. I think it's really changed, changed the landscape of college athletics and college basketball. I mean, the NIL deals at the highest level are big, but most, I would say 95% are, aren't getting more than $10,000 a year. But you wouldn't know that the way the social media trends are. And so I think it's a lot of unrealistic, um, you know, it's an unrealistic mindset and what people are actually thinking, um, perception of what's actually happening in the college game, but uh, at least on the women's side. The women's and men's side are completely different. Yeah. But I know, like, our men's coach, you know, last year or two years ago, he was like, yeah, uh, you know, this kid would have came back and been our best player, but he got offered uh, $75,000 to go play at you know, school A, and he went to school A. I mean, like, you yeah. can't blame the kid, right? And so you got Pell-eligible kids. They're poor, you know, and – the problem is no one's educating them on the fact that they have to pay taxes on this money. Right. Um, and so I think there's a disconnect. I don't think people really thought this out. There was not a lot of education for the players and some disconnect with the NIL money and that kind of stuff and paying taxes and all that. So I think it's it's become a business and it's become, you know, pay to play. And, and, and the amateurism part is, is, is not really existent anymore, in my opinion. Well, Coach, we're going to let you go. We know you had a long day. First, uh, first D1 win today, two-game winning streak. You're getting ready for Vermont on Thursday. But I'll tell you, we have February 3rd scheduled. Big circle. Big circle here at Columbia. We have local Long Island girl Riley Weiss. I know her dad real well. I know her. She, she dropped about 40 on us in high school one game. Uh, we're going to we bring her. We were her first offer. I'm um, sure. Well, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to bring a huge contingent to that game and be cheering cheering you on. Uh, but really, we can't thank you enough for being on with us. It's really been a pleasure. We wish you nothing but the best. And um, hopefully we can make this happen again a little later in the season. And um, you're, you're on a huge winning streak, and we're looking towards the playoffs at that point. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate the time, and I hope uh, you guys have a great rest of the rest of the call and rest of the um – the, the new year and, and Merry Christmas. I, I know it's Christmas almost very soon. <laughs> yes. Congrats and, and all the best, all right. Coach. Yeah, all you the know, best. Thank you. Appreciate you Bye. keeping the way you are. All right. Coach Linda Simino, head coach, Dartmouth College, uh, one of the Ivies, just, just a tremendous person along with the coach. 
Um, we've known her a long time, both Cap and I. She was gracious enough to come on tonight uh, after getting off a bus. Uh, just just a wonderful person. And, you know, she mentioned about college basketball and college athletics being a business. She's kind of the anti-business person but still has to do it. Yeah, that's a tough situation when uh, you're you're – trying to coach a team but there's so much other stuff behind it and um you know for anybody that maybe is out there going through the process of trying to pick a college like it's not as easy as it was uh there's so many factors out there and that's kind of what she talked about but it was good having her on and kind of you know gave us that insight of college basketball is picking up and um it's trying to pick up speed even earlier mike you like all these tournaments over thanksgiving just become bigger and bigger and um, you're just getting a, a view into it. They're trying to chop into some of the NBA and some of the NFL as fast as they can. Yeah, and some of the locations. It, you know, I was lucky enough to be in the Bahamas a couple of weeks ago for, for a long weekend, and they were getting ready for the women's. Yeah, for the the Baja Challenge. That's I mean, it. it's it's really it's unbelievable. I know Seton Hall was was down there as well. Coach Tony Bazella got his 500th win. We'll hope to have him on pretty soon. Another Long Island connection from Glen Cove. Uh, put it put a licking on us a couple of times. Uh, great guy as well. But um, we had a full show tonight, folks. You know, we were talking, first of all, Jets and Islanders with Johnny Sticks, and then uh, we had our new guy, Connor Clark, on talking college football. And then uh, there's Coach Linda Simino giving us 20 minutes of just, just great talk. And, um, you know, while we, we talk about New York sports, Cap, we, we had a whole potpourri tonight of yeah, different and, sports. and we weren't able to take some phone calls tonight, but we appreciate everybody listening in and hopefully uh, – you know, we'll be on in a couple of weeks. We'll be able to, to, to promo that a little bit. And um, But it was kind of nice to uh, to go back. And, and, you know, Mike and I coached together at, at two different colleges, and we're able to, you know, put a lot of that stuff together. It, it was a good reminisce of, uh, of what was and kind of what is now. But um, we had a good time. As we said, we're going to promo the fact that we'll be back on the air. We'll take your phone calls the next time we're on. We appreciate you listening in. Um, we're going to actually be on next week. Okay. Same time slot, 8 to 9. Uh, so those of you who didn't get a chance to call in tonight, please do. Uh, we will kind of go back into a little bit more New York focus. But, yeah, this was a, to have uh, to have some friends on tonight really was wonderful and, and just goes to show that while sports is a business, you can still be friends through it. For Chris Caputo, for Brian Graves behind the, the glass, did a great job for us. This is Mike Winone signing off. Looking forward to talking to you next week on WGBB Sports Talk New York. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.